If you're listening to the Vincast, you are no doubt a wine lover and also very tech savvy. So I'm sure you would have seen uh, some of the different apps you can get for your iPhone to track and uh, record and also share the wines you love and enjoy. Well, if you are based in Australia and New Zealand, I cannot recommend enough the Venus app for iPhone, which recognizes any wine with just a snap of a label. The reason why it's great for Australia and New Zealand is because it was designed and developed here and it's for users exclusively in those countries because it uses up-to-date information to let you know what you might expect to pay for a wine you're interested in, but also where you might be able to buy it. Uh, it's a very easy to use. It's great for sharing with your networks and with, um, with Venus, you can actually follow other wine professionals and lovers like yourself and find out what they might be recommending. So what you need to do is go to getvenus.com forward slash Vincast, download the app, start snapping away and help them to change the way that we enjoy wine. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and it is episode 40. Uh, we are now in February. Where does the time go? Already got through January. I hope you've been enjoying some of the recent episodes. As always, I appreciate the people who appear on the podcast's time and their generosity in sharing their stories, and we've got some more exciting guests coming up, including... Josh Elias, the editor of Alchemy, and Brendan Carter, who makes wine in South Australia under the Unico Zello name. Um, just before we start this week's episode, I just want to do a few quick shout-outs. Of course, it's always great to hear from people um, in support of the podcast with feedback, that kind of thing. So I um, just wanted to thank uh, Vineyard Paul, uh, Mitchell Harris Wines, Val Crew, John Fister, uh, Alfonso Chevola, um, Hawk Waka Waka, and uh, Jonathan Brook, as always, Love your work. Thank you so much for your support. And, of course, I'd love to um, shout out to a, pre a few previous guests for their continued support in promoting the podcast, Ed Merrison, Daniel Honan, Brad Hickey, and Alda Yarra, most recent guests. So uh, for this week's episode, I brought on someone that I've been following for quite a while who um, is pretty well known, uh, certainly in Victorian wine circles. His name is Bill Downey. Um, you may be familiar with his uh, Pinot Noirs from uh, around different parts of Victoria, um, but also um, his wine that he makes in the Yarra Valley, Thousand Candles. So Bill came on, talked a little bit about his story, and we finished up discussing an upcoming event as part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, which is the Highway One Street Party. So stay tuned for that. Bill, thank you so much for uh, coming down and joining me on the Vincast uh, in the studio. First one for a little while, um, and um, obviously probably preparing for various vintages in different places. So uh, I appreciate you making the time. My pleasure. Bill, um, you uh, have worked in wine for many years, but tell me, where, what was your first sort of contact with wine that kind of made you think that you'd like to follow a career in wine? Um, my, my parents always drank wine. Yep. Not like in, we were very much working class, so when I was really young there wasn't much money and they, they didn't buy wine very often, but I certainly remember... One particular occasion when I was really very young, my dad ordering a case of wine, I think it was a Mildara wine. It was the first time I ever remember my dad ordering a whole case of wine and my mum being slightly horrified by it. But Like from the winery? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, 
and it was very unusual. They usually had bag in box, so to have yeah, bottles yeah. of wine was kind of unusual. And I, I just so there was wine always around. And my dad's closest friend, who's been his closest friend for more than sixty years, um, since you know they were tiny little kids, they grew up together. He has always been a great wine collector and has you know of Australian wine particularly, but um, has Magnums number one and two of Mount Mary Quintet. And no way. Since they started bottling him uh, in, and he's collection goes well into back into the 70s from lots of different now very well regarded australian wine producers sure. so so th- there was always that association and connection as well and then you know we as kids from the time we were 10 or 11 we had our own wine glass and on special occasions we were allowed to have a little glass of wine and um were you interested like did you kind of want to taste stuff were you kind of interested oh you know they, their Not, parents are sort of trying this wine thing. I'd like to try it. Yeah, I kind of, I can't, I couldn't say I recall specific feelings like that, but I was always aware of wine. And, or just and, being grown up. <laughs> so like, oh, I want to be a grown up. Yeah, I think it was probably more to do, mum, dad did that. So that's what, that's what I'll do. But sure. later on in my late teens started to become much more interested and, and more of my dad's friends were more and more interested in wine and as was my father who as it or my parents as they kind of started to have a bit more money and became more interested in food and wine generally um and then where did you grow up in latrobe valley oh okay um i so I lived not far out of melbourne in yeah a little while hour and a half from yeah from the cities in very working class very 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 working class i grew up in churchill and is that like no, no, Morwell, Maui, Trelgan. Ah, oh, right, yeah, okay. Um, coal mining, power generation, brown yep. coal. Yeah, yep. And my father was actually in pulp and paper, but heavy industrial kind of area mm. um, and pretty depressed, although early on it was reasonably prosperous and then in the mid-'80s uh, with privatisation it declined I remember going badly. I think, we were, I think maybe we were going on a school camp somewhere and we stopped off in this place called Old Gippstown or something yeah. in Maui. Yeah. And even then it sort of felt a bit sad. Yeah, and that's that's it's kind of a bit of a, a joke. You know, people joke about Maui often as being a really, that's where all the bogans come from. And yeah. My mum actually grew up in Maui. It's the, it's the other Frankston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and in some respects, you know, it was earlier on. Frankston wasn't too bad until right, okay. a bit later. But certainly in the 80s, Maui... And then through the nineties had a pretty bad reputation, but, sure. but that's kind of, that's where I grew up. Okay. And, and f- until my early twenties lived in the, in the same house. Right. Um, what, what were you sort of, what were your early interests as far as, um, like stuff you were passionate about before you kind of found just or discovered wine? Oh, I was a musician, not a very good one. And, um, bass player in a, in a just rock good and roll sort band. of pub rock type stuff. Yeah. Cold chisel. Well, we didn't really play cold chisel, but we were we were a bit more interested in in slightly more interesting Australian music from the eighties and seventies. But oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I did that. So kind of through the end of high school, and then I I studied audio engineering at the School of Audio Engineering in St Kilda at the time. It was mm-hmm. um, got chucked out of that. And one of the my only two temp- attempts at tertiary education ended with being chucked out. But, <laughs> um, 
but yeah, music was really my interest, and and in particular, the recording process mm. was was the thing that interested me most. Um, and I, I played full time in bands and messed around in studios and stuff mm-hmm. through my late teens and early twenties. So at this um, point, were you living in Melbourne? I only had a short stint. I lived, which actually leads back into what you were asking before. But I, I actually, when I first came to Melbourne and started studying at the School of Audio, um, I I lived with some friends of my parents who were a professional couple with no kids, really great food and wine enthusiasts, and so they they taught me a great deal about food. Te- uh, taught me how to cook. My mum cooks well, but my these these guys were just a bit more had a slightly broader view of the world of food and, you know, they'd probably be introduced to a bit more diverse cuisines, like yes. Asian food, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and I think a proper introduction to Mediterranean food sure. as well. You know, they, they bought me, I, th- I forget, maybe for my 18th or 19th, possibly 20th birthday, the Harry's Bar cookbook, mm-hmm. um, which I still use. It's still, that's kind of the foundation of how I cook is is kind of formed from Harry's Bar. Mm. Um, and and they also had more disposable income and were interested in wine. But that, that was the only stint I really had in Melbourne. And then I'm, I lived in an apartment in St Kilda in Carlisle Street for about six or nine months or something, and then I moved back mm-hmm. to La Trobe Valley. So I probably spent all up a year, mm-hmm. a bit over a year maybe, living in Melbourne. And then <laughs> what sort of... Guided you on that path towards wine. Well, I didn't make much money as a musician. It was, which is fine in your teens and early twenties, but eventually you start aspiring to owning a house or doing a few other things with your life, and and didn't really have enough money to do that. So I started working part time in a bottle shop in Churchill at the like the licensed grocer had a, a liquor store attached to it. Right. So I started working part time there, and then worked a bit more and more and more and. The owner of the store, who I'd known for my, well, it was my first part-time job when I was old enough to get a part-time job at 15 and nine months was packing shelves in their supermarket. So I'd, I'd kind of gone and left about five times working for this family that owned the supermarket. And um, he kind of realised that beer and spirits wasn't going to make him any money and there was money in wine. So he's like, okay, Bill, you and I need to learn some more about wine. And he knew that I was already a little bit interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually did some wine appreciation courses uh, with Jeremy Oliver. Oh, okay. Um, which were wonderful. They really did open up my mind, and and that was it was really through that that I that I really became f- interested in the idea of wine as a career. Sure. Um, and it, it was, which I think has some relevance to you possibly, but I, I remember Wayne Donaldson, who when he was still working for Domaine Chandon. Mm-hmm coming in and speaking to the group at the, one of the courses and it was it was kind of off the back of his talk that I really was like oh yeah I really want to I really want to do this and and also and you also like the idea of the Yarra Valley no no I've never actually sort of okay. had felt a real connection for the Yarra Valley particularly I, th- I was always going to be in Gippsland that was just that's who I am and I'm I'm of the place you mm. know that's just that's home and there's no denying it but um, it was also that was the first time I kind of discovered a little bit about French wine, and it was a, a, just a, a simple Trouin Chablis village wine that was one of the wines he poured 
in that one appreciation course. And that was the first time I got, I always thought wine should be of a place. I don't know why I had that view, but mm. I don't recall ever thinking any other way about wine that other than that it should taste like it came from somewhere and that's the thing which is compelling. And, and that it's made from something. Yeah, well, it, it, that it came from somewhere, you know, that the connection to place was always the thing which was interesting to me and, and just having this village shabbly wine which screamed place, even though I had no idea really what the place was about, I, it just had a presence. Something about it was compelling. On a level that I really hadn't seen before. And that, that wine really, I, to me, still to this day when I think back, that's, that's kind of there's before and after that wine and, and that was really when my eyes were I opened had, I, properly. I, I, I had a wine like that. Yeah. Was, I'm sure a lot was, of people. It was a 1997 Yering Big Pinot Noir. Yeah, okay. And we had it, uh, you know, at Izard for my sister's, my younger sister's 21st birthday. And it was just, I, I, I couldn't explain. You know, I think it, that was, she just turned 30. That was nine years ago. So that was 2005. Yep. Um, and so, you know, th- th- I'd never had a uh, sort of a mature wine like that and, and, you know, it, just something about it was just went. Yeah, this is uh, this is what I want to do. Uh, you know, I love this. I guess that's how most people must have an experience like that. I have asked people and, <clears throat> on previous episodes, and a lot of people can't think, or they they're like, oh, I don't think it was a wine. It was just sort of wine in general. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But I, I, I guess I know a few people who've had similar experiences. Anyway, sure, but but that was mine, and then then I really knew. And then a few things started to correspond and, and I realised that, that recording music and making wine are identical tasks, although that took a number of years. Okay, tell, um, me, what you, tell me what you mean by that. Because I asked, I asked this question of Dave Brooks. I asked if he kind of liked, you know, if he could find similarities in, in sort of musical appreciation and then wine appreciation. You know, he's less of a winemaker, obviously, you know, more of a com- yeah. communicator and judge, that kind of thing. Um, in the same way that he he was a muso in in terms of being working like as a roadie, yeah. um, but you know was interested in musical appreciation. I'm interested to sort of hear what you think about it, being someone who created both music and creates wine. Yeah, no, and there's there are some difference differences in that. I think the tendency is to assume that making wine is rather more like being a musician, and I guess from my experience. To me, it's quite clearly not the case. The, 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 cor- the comparison is between the recording of music and the making of wine. The, the creation of the music itself is, oh, is okay. rather like, you know, if, if there's art in wine, it's, it's nature which is the artist, not, not the winemaker. Or- so so when, when you, what you're talking about is in the way that you capture music yes. and... and, and- basically put it onto you know a recorded form yep. is the same way that you capture nature and put it into a bottle exactly okay the the thought process the thinking to me is there, there just isn't any difference and when i started when i finally went to work in wine properly and i would hear people debating things back and forth and discussing ideas about how to go about making wine and i was like well isn't it isn't it perfectly obvious to you that you would go about it in this way sure and and realized that that was Really, because of that experience of learning about recording music and and what you're trying to achieve, you know, capturing the truth of a point in time, mm. a place and a point in time, 
is what you're doing in music, you know, the performance of the musicians and the sound of their instruments and the sound of the room that you're working in um, and trying to get that in its most pure form mm-hmm. in, a, in the most truthful way to allow somebody who's not in that space at that point in time to relive and the, I, the experience of being there is, is what you're trying to do in music. And same in wine, you know, you're trying to transport somebody to another place at a, at a different point in time. And But I also looked at it, and, and this is sort of what I talked about with Dave, in the same way that a, two, two different people can listen to one piece of music and have different emotions because you yeah. know, they're drawing on different experiences and different influences in the same way that two people can have the same wine and appreciate it in different ways because they have totally different journeys to get to that one point. Yep. Um, I, I was just thinking now that yeah, in the same way that uh, a, a piece of music can sound different depending on whether you play it on, on vinyl or CD or digital, that kind of thing, you know, a, a glass can actually influence the way you enjoy wine. Yeah, no, I think you can you can probably draw all sorts of analogies if you wanted to, but, but really simply, put very simply, you know, it's about wine is recording in the same sense as music is, listening to music is a, is a recording, you know, that's, mm-hmm. And, and the wonderful thing about wine, the really compelling thing about wine, and in, well, smell as a tool for memory is is quite an extraordinary thing, and and the best tool for memory that there is. And there's kind of an obvious reason for that, you know, when you when you make a recording or you take a photograph or you know those visual oral tools for for capturing are, are pretty rudimentary, really, and yeah. and they're only kind of the most rough approximations. Yeah, where where smell is is much more physical you know you have to physically re-smell something in order to relive the experience so it's far sure. more evocative because you're physically it's it's a much more physical interaction with whatever it is mm. and it, i think it's why you know people's most evocative memories of early life in particular are, are, are prompted by smells mm-hmm. the smell of their grandmother's perfume or you know that unique smell that Fresh everybody's house has or yeah. mown grass there are lots and lots of things like that and wine wine does that in the most extraordinary way you know i had a period of being really into old old wine 70 80 100 year old wine and we me and a few friends would spend stupid amounts of money buying old burgundies and wow um and and part of what made that so compelling was the fact that it was almost like time travel, you know, going back to the 20s or 30s and physically reliving that experience of that wine in the glass and smelling it is is really like going back in time and thinking about the people that would have been involved in the process of making that wine are long dead, but mm-hmm. you're, you're still physically able to relive the experience that they had. Um, and that that's what I find really very, very compelling about wine. How did you eventually kind of enter sort of the, the workforce, I guess, for wine or in terms of being a winemaker? Um, well, that's – and I I enjoy the, telling this story because it, it feels as though it's in some ways full circle, but it was um, it was through the, the first negotiants working with wine um, in 1998. Um, I was working in the little bottle shop down in, in La Trobe Valley and – the guy who was the Chateau Yaldara rep at the time, the guy Baylor Rice, who went on, he ended up working for Domain Wine Shippers and. Oh, okay. Um, really lovely guy. He. Um, 
but like one of those old school wine reps? Oh, he was, he was not old school. He worked for an old school company, but he was reasonably progressive. You know, he would come in and I would place my order for flagons of cream sherry and we would talk about things entirely unrelated to cream sherry. <laughs> um, but he came in one day and said, have you seen this? You should enter. You should have a go. And I was like, oh, maybe I will. And it was the last day to submit an application. So I did and went along to the little tasting exam that I don't know if they still do it, but you had to sit, there were four wines in front of you and you had to write a tasting note on each one before you could go along to the seminars. Oh, okay. I don't know if they still do it. I don't think that that component's done because, you know, it's probably logistically a little bit more difficult. Yeah, or maybe they just, they've covered, they've been doing it for so long that they, there are less, there's less demand for the places or something. I don't, I have no idea. But I think, anyway. I think a lot of the people who apply for it have been working in wine for many, many years. Yeah. And so they're pretty experienced. I think they're kind of, you know, their resume speaks for themselves. Yeah, I don't know how they, I should find out. I should, it wouldn't be very difficult for me to find out. But anyway, I went along and sat that and, got into the past that and went to the seminars and you have to do the written piece as well. And I, I decided I'd read about Philip Jones and Bass Philip and, and liked very much what he was talking about, his idea of place. And that was very compelling. And, and so I really wanted to meet him and, and talk to him about wine. And, um, so I decided I would, I would write, do my written piece on Bass Philip. Mm. Uh, so I rang him up and said, oh, would you mind if I came and spoke to you? I'm doing this thing for the negotiants working with wine. Um, and he said, no, I'm too busy. I'm in the middle of pruning. And I said, oh, well, what about if I... That sounds very much like him. <laughs> what about if I come and give you a hand for a day? Will you talk to me then? And he said, okay, come down next week. And so I went down there and worked worked away pulling out behind him as he pruned and... Um, and then we sat down and over lunch, he's like, oh, I need to employ somebody. Do you want a job? And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. <laughs> so then I left the bowl shop and went to work for Philip for a couple of years. Mm. Um, that would have been pretty eye-opening. Yeah, and the first year or so was really wonderful. We we got along really well and um, he opened lots of, it's to me, extraordinary wine and still to this day wine that that I have lots of, memories of and really taught me I kind of went from being very much a novice to to being able to pick a Rousseau blind no problem in in the space of what a nice problem to have yeah and then and then things deteriorated from there and I lasted not quite two years but Mm. um but that was how I ended up in wine and it was through the negotiations thing so it's kind of now to have our wine distributed by Samuel Smith and Nicosians is, it was really a very wonderful thing because mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have become a winemaker. I mean, maybe I would have, but that was certainly the thing that sent me very definitely in that direction when it might have otherwise either taken a longer time or I would not have done it. So clearly in terms of, you know, your epiphany wine being a Chardonnay and then working with, uh, you know, over at Bass Philip, you clearly had a love of, and, you know, you've mentioned Burgundy a few times, you clearly have a love affair with uh, the Burgundian varieties. No, no, not you at all. You don't? No, I, I'm interested in the places, but the varieties of no interest whatsoever. Okay. How did you end up uh, in the Yarra Valley? Uh, well, I, when I went to leave, I, Philip and I sat down and he... Um, 
we pretty much agreed that there was no future for me, for me working for him. Um, and so I was, he said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, oh, well, I'd still, I'm really enjoying being in wine. I would like to continue to pursue, try and pursue a career as, as a winemaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I just sent some resume out. He, his response was, Bill, you have a very low aptitude for winemaking and you should consider another career path. Um, but I sent some resumes out and I guess it was in early enough days that, that there were a few jobs in the offing and I, I there were just Salaham positions, but one was at Red Hill Estate mm-hmm. and, and then the other was to Bordley and I don't know, I don't recall exactly why I chose to Bordley. I think I thought it was bigger, so I'd done really small, maybe I should try and I clearly wasn't suited to that, so I, I maybe I'll try the other extreme, go to the biggest place I can and see where whether I find a better home there. Mm. And how was it working under Steve? It was great. It's it really it, – I probably – I've complained about it many times and I feel like I should stop doing that because actually, actually it was really an extremely fulfilling experience and, and I learned an enormous amount. And, and Steve and I I'll – pro- I'll never work in that capacity with someone ever again, I'm quite sure. You know, I really feel like we – we went on a journey, a bit of a journey together of kind of discovery and it, it was really quite special actually. Mm. Um, and Steve's not always the easiest guy to work for. And, um, but, you know, we, we had a really quite a, a period, an intense period of four or five years of really I think both of us are different as a result of that. I'm not saying he's different as a result of me. I'm just saying that as a result of discovering wine, some wines together and having, you know, we went and made some wine in Burgundy together and I think we both learned an enormous amount through that period mm. um, together, not not him from me or me for him, from him necessarily, but we just went on a kind of concurrent exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly wouldn't be where I am or doing what I'm doing now were it not for for that experience and the help that they gave me to get started with with our own label, which they, they very definitely did. Now, I know that um, I think I first got introduced to you as a, as a winemaker when I was still working at uh, Domaine Chandon in the Yarra Valley. And then when I left there in 2010 and I started working in independent retail, I remember the Bordley rep coming in and sort of, introducing me to some other wines i'm not sure when did you leave to bordley end of 2007 okay because yeah i i i'd known that you were kind of involved with some of the sort of side projects for de bordley no uh only in burgundy we we made not the fire stuff oh kind of yeah i mean oh that was all made at de bordley yeah and and that was a project that i was quite passionate about and a sure. vineyard that that I have been passionate about but I, had I a seem, fraught I, I relationship. I seem to remember, yeah, the, the five wines getting kind of launched when I, I think when I was still I think 05 was probably, or maybe even 04 might have been the first vintage of First five. vintage, yeah. Um, but Certainly the 05s were the first kind of serious. Yeah, I started working at um, Shandon in 2006, so I think they, the first vintage got released. Around Pretty, about then, yeah, yeah when I was in the cellar door, and yep. and I sort of looked at these bottles, and went, well, that's very striking. And I think that's possibly where I first heard your name. 
But um, they, you know, having kind of worked in a number of different sort of regions in Victoria, that kind of led you to make making some Pinot Noirs from different parts of, of the state, different vineyards, and then that kind of really got your name out there a lot more. Yeah, and so in some ways that kind of happened by accident and some ways it was inevitable. There was probably nothing else that I was going to do. But um, the first wines, we, only, we started bottling wine under, our, under the William Downey label in, from the 2003 vintage, even though it wasn't based in Australia at that time. Okay. Um, and, and it was just Yarra. And then I kind of knew that I was probably going to leave to Bordley at some point and I, and I, there was a bit of tension kind of creeping in between Steve and I and I wasn't, I wasn't sure how it was going to play out and I thought, oh, if, if things go badly, I don't know what Steve's reaction will be. I probably want to hedge my bets here, so I need to make some other wine. So in 2006, I thought I'll make some wine somewhere else just in case things go badly and I, I don't want to be left without any wine. And, and I thought, oh, I can't make another Yarra wine because then if I don't leave, then all of a sudden I'll have two Yarra wines and that'll look a bit awkward. It kind of, I don't know how that's going to play out. So I thought, oh, you know what? I should, I should start to explore some other regions. So I actually made some Mornington wine at James Lance's place in 2006. And that was kind of the beginning of. So it was Mornington, but it was made at, in, in a part of the Yarra Valley. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and then I didn't leave and ended up making another Mornington wine in 2007 um, and then did leave after that. But uh, actually, and made in 2007, made the first Gippsland wine, which was smoke affected and we didn't, didn't release it. But um, so it kind of happened by accident that we started making wine from other regions, but it, it was also something that, uh, you know, I had been, I had wanted to make wine of place. By that point, we'd already stopped putting a Great Friday on the label. The wines were only labelled even in 2005. It's still, it just said Yarra Valley 2005. It didn't say Pinot Noir anywhere on the label. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the wines were always about place and exploration of place and it seemed very logical to do rather than trying to divvy up the Yarra Valley, which has been done and done very successfully by other people, I, f- I felt and probably still feel to this day that, that that's a degree of sophistication which is beyond most people who buy and drink wine and probably most people who are wine professionals even, um, I don't think we we have a deep enough connection to place or understanding of place yet in Australian wine to really start to have a sophisticated conversation about single vineyard wine. Mm. I, you know, people turn up at a vineyard already knowing what kind of wine they're going to make. So just because it comes from one spot doesn't make it a wine of place. I think there are separate things going on there. But... So but did I thought you have to a different, do did you kind have of macro level descriptions was probably the place to start. Did you have a different approach for for each site, or did you no. kind of want to do it the same way yep. and really allow the the site to to speak as clear, as clearly as possible? Yeah, no, I don't really believe in winemaking anyway. I think most of it's bullshit, and the less you do, the better the wine. So I wasn't really. I've never been someone who was particularly concerned with minor manipulation of the process to modify the style, or you know, that really doesn't interest me at all. I, mostly have been trying to figure out how to stop doing things, not not introduce things to make it more sophisticated. You haven't um, done any uh, winemaking studies? I, that was my other tertiary education that I got chucked out of. I did three years, or not quite three years, at Charles Sturt 
By correspondence? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, and then, but then I'd moved to France and just never quite got around to going back. And eventually I said, if you don't come back, then you can't continue your studies. So I was like, oh, well, I don't think I'll bother then. Hmm, wine studies or France? What one at that point, I was, by that point, I think I was back in Australia, but I was in the senior winemaking role at Tabordley. And so there were, in theory anyway, I try, I'm not into hierarchy, but there were, in theory, a whole bunch of people reporting to me who had university sure. degrees and sure, I sure. didn't. So I thought maybe... Maybe I don't need to worry about this too much. Yeah, well, you know, it's largely on the job. You didn't, like, in terms of what you were learning whilst you were still studying it, did you really learn that much? Oh, some bits and pieces of, not, not, I mean, the soil science stuff they did was was really chemistry-based, which doesn't interest me. You know, to me, the, the interesting part of soil is biology, not chemistry. And same, you know, plant physiology, they'd kind of talk about stuff and say, well, actually, that's as much as we know and that's just the current theory. So I don't know. I I wouldn't say I learnt nothing, but I, I wouldn't say that it was as compelling as many of the other experiences I had. I think I learnt much more on the job and I, I've since kind of always felt that wine, being a winemaker was was a trade rather than than a science you know, <laughs> it's rather it's a bit like being a plumber or a yeah, you do an apprenticeship and then you, you yeah. get a proper job and you sort of yeah. get more experienced yeah and it's not to say that you, there's no application of science whatsoever i think a plumber and, a, and an electrician and a carpenter would would agree you know there's quite a bit of science involved in their trade mm, the um, side but, of things. but the, it's a trade not not a university mm. academic career it's 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 hands-on um and if you get good at it, maybe one day it's it's a craft more than a trade. But um, but the process itself doesn't interest me particularly. It's it's pretty dull for the most part. <laughs> most conversations about winemaking are, are incredibly boring. Mm, I agree. That's why I started a podcast. <laughs> no, I knew farming. I think farming's <laughs> deeply compelling, and I, yeah. I, I enjoy talking to people about farming and whatever kind of farming it is, that's the bit that I, I really enjoy, not, not the uh, conversion. It's, you know. For me, you know, at a really basic level, wine is just like any other kind of food-based product. Absolutely. It's just drawing sustenance from the land. Yep. That's a beautiful relationship you can have with the land and in that you give to it and it gives back to you. Yep. And I think that, you know, too much about wine is about just wanting to take all the time. And, and, and trying to tell it, you know, this is what you should be or this is what I want from you rather than, you know, here's what you need. Why now not? I'm interested to find out what you give me in return. Yeah, and a lot of it seems to be about fulfilling somebody's need for importance as well. You know, the, yeah. the idea that that the, the thing which determines the quality of the outcome is is the person who, who facilitates the process to me is very, very hard to swallow, but it seems to be at the core of a lot of wine the world over. I'd blame the Baudelaire for that. I probably would too, but I think, you know, it's human nature to some degree as well. But Yeah. Um, it, that, to me, you know, winemaking is no more interesting than the process of pickling, pickling our olives or convert. It's probably not even as interesting as making small goods. And, mm, mm. Um, you know, it's part of our farm life at home, you know, is harvesting and, and preserving that's, that's what we do at home across many areas. So wine, wine's just one part of it. How long did you uh, live in France for? I, I kind of only lived there full-time for a couple of years with a couple of short stints back in Australia. But it was kind of over five years I spent 
the sum total of kind of 50% of my time in France and 50 in Australia, but it was varying proportions. The first few years, mostly in France and the last couple, mostly in Australia and just three or four months a year in France. And, and did you live in a particular part or a different part? In, in Burgundy. Um, initially in, in chevre Chambertin and then in Bone. I met my wife. She was living in Bone, um, working for Kermit Lynch. Oh, okay, cool. And in his office in Bone. So I, the first year I lived in Gervais and then and then after that, it wasn't even a year, the first stint in France, I, I lived in Gervais and then I moved to into Bone, into Rachel's apartment. How did you find living in, in France? Did you sort of appreciate that kind of slightly more provincial way of living? Because um, Burgundy yeah, is still was, pretty developed as far as a lot of wine regions, but it's not kind of developed in the way that... Bordeaux or Champagne is? No, I guess not. No, I, I haven't been to Bordeaux. In fact, it's probably, I think it's just about the only wine region in France I've never been to. But um, no, it was life-changing. Going there was really opened my mind. I'd never left Australia at all growing up until, until I went to Burgundy. That was the first time I'd left Australia. And I, I literally got off the plane at Charles de Gaulle and got the bus to Gare de Lyon, got straight on the train to Dijon, got out, got out of the train and straight into a taxi to Gevray, got out of the taxi, walked in and started work. Wow. And that was my first experience of leaving Australia and it was like, poof. Did you speak French? No, didn't speak French, didn't know any, didn't have any money. Didn't have any issues? Um, oh, not really. The, I went, went to work for Jean-Marie Fourier. Okay. Um, and he spoke good English and his now wife was English. Um, but so, and that was kind of right around harvest. And then I stayed on through and worked in the vineyard and the guys in the vineyard didn't work. It didn't speak English, mm. but Jean-Marie was kind of there. So I kind of eased into learning French, but it was painful for the first year, but eventually didn't hurt anymore. Mm. Um, but yeah, that first period of being there, I didn't know anyone, didn't have a telephone, didn't have a television, didn't have a car, um, didn't have any money, literally nearly starved to death at one point. Um, well, so like, you know, so like didn't start to death, said- but ran completely out of food and had no money and didn't. Oh, I think I had like a kilo of potatoes that I had to last me I, that I lived on for three or four days. Wow. So um, did that take you back to your days as a muso? Uh, no, nothing quite that bad ever happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, but it meant that I, I was kind of properly immersed in, in the place anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Burgundy to learn about the wine of Burgundy, not to learn about winemaking, that was really an aside. No. Yeah. Um, so I just spent all my time wandering around the vineyards and in the end I knew the exact delineation of every vineyard in Gevray and, and in fact, all of the Premier Cruz and, Cro- and Grand Cruz of the whole Côte de Nuit and the exact surface area of every Premier Cru and Grand Cru in Gevray and most of the ownership, like, you know, because all the... It took a little while to figure out how the growers knew which road was theirs because it's all just one big mess of vineyards. That's something you know, I always, I, I, I like all over Europe, you know, the, like different it's how they tie that, the end, the wire on the end of the post. Yeah, the, the, everyone has their own method of tying the wire for the stay. So once you know which estate ties their wire in which way, you can figure out for the most part whose vineyards are where. Mm. Um, so I kind of was very obsessive about knowing the exact. Exactly every square meter of, of, in particular, Gevray, but mostly in the end. I, I, at that time, could list 
every single Premier crew and Grand Crew in the whole of the Cotonui off by heart. That's kind of nerdy, it sorry was, to say. It was quite nerdy at the time, and now I can remember barely any of it. But but that that whole experience was really, yeah, it, it was very much life-changing. And the whole culture of food, the, the engagement and respect for land and farming, um, which is not universal in France, but there are enough people who who believe deeply in the value of land mm. that, that I really, I hadn't met people in Australia who thought of it in quite that way. That really did change my life. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And, um, did you have kind of a, uh, a sort of a Mecca moment? Did you go to Chablis? Yeah, I went to Chablis. In fact, my first trip to Chablis was just a few days after Rachel and I kind of got together and it was our first, first proper date, just the two of us. Cause we'd done, I actually met her by accident through Patrick Pews, who now makes Chablis wines himself. And I do know. Um, I'm actually hoping to get Patrick on a future episode. Yeah, well, he... Because I, I visited him a couple of times. Yeah, well, he was working for Olivier Laflave at the time, and uh-huh. I went down to a tasting with someone I was working with and um, ended up staying at his place, getting pierced. And It's funny that you met him there, considering, you know, the number of times he's worked vintage in Australia. Yeah, and I've never seen him in Australia. But anyway, I stayed at his place, and he was driving me back to Gevray the next day, and, and Rachel rang, because Rachel had been to university in Quebec, and he's Quebecois, and... They mm-hmm. bumped into each other and said, let's catch up for a coffee. So she was ringing to try and arrange to have a coffee. And um, and then he's driving, answers his phone. He said, oh, I'm just driving one of your compatriots back to Chevrolet and <laughs> handed me the phone. Um, and it was Rachel. And I was like, hello? And she said, oh, you really are Australian. And but we spoke for the next 20 minutes. And when I got out of the car, I was like, I'm going to marry that woman. <laughs> wow. Um, and... And so we only met in person about a week later when Gary Mills, Jamshed Gary Mills, yeah. came to town and she sent a fax because that's, you know, still at that time how most people, in, they probably still do in Burgundy, communicated. And I didn't have a phone. So she sent a fax and said, I've got some Australian friends coming to town on Friday. Would you like to catch up for a drink? So I went and we kind of did a few things together. Went to Lyon for the weekend with Gary and his mates and a couple other people and then you know, Rachel and I ended up kind of hitting it off and she took me to Shabley a couple of weeks later on our first proper date, just the two of us, and she had arranged, because she's friends with Bernard Ravneau, that, so that was my introduction to Shabley was going there and tasting with Rachel and Bernard Ravneau. If you're introduced to Shabley through Ravneau, you, there's not really anywhere else you can go from there. Not really, no, that was quite <laughs> quite special and and... Bill and I was quite fond of Rachel and so it was really, it was a lovely visit and, mm. um, and ended up going back there quite a few times and having dinner and with them and, yeah. But anyway, that I did go to Chablis, yes. And did you kind of reminisce on that, that, that uh, Drouin village? I don't recall. I probably would have at the time, but, mm. uh, I mean, it was all just... So much of it was, everything was new. I'd never been anywhere like that. And mm-hmm. it was winter, you know, we drove up through one of the the frosts in, you know, the whole place is white, all the trees are white. And I'd never seen anything like that in my whole life. Yeah. Um, so I was transfixed by all of it. It was really, yeah, really pretty amazing experience. Yeah, actually, I, uh, I, I the second time I went to Chablis, it was not long after after Vintage. And, uh, but, but it snowed when I was in Burgundy. And so the first time I'd been in Burgundy was in summer. And then, you know, as it was approaching winter and it was 
so dramatically different, but equally beautiful, mm. equally beautiful. Anyway, so how did you get involved with this um, very interesting project in the Yarra Valley, which is Thousand Candles? Um, that was just one of those kind of coincidences that come along every now and then, but basically it was a, a couple of guys who knew nothing about or little about wine were asked by a wealthy investor to set up a wine project basically, as mm. along with other things. You know, the guy had a pool of funds he wanted to invest in Australia, passionate about wines. The priority one was a wine project. They, the, One of the guys went to school, went to boarding school with Sam Miranda and so he rang Sam and said, look, I own this wine project. I don't know anything about wine. Can you help me out? And he's like, well, what are you doing he's like well I kind of there's a property for sale in the morning to peninsula maybe i could look at that and he said well actually you know I'm, i don't know anything about that but i know somebody who spends a bit of time down there maybe you can talk to him and so they rang me um and they they basically said we've got this wine project but we don't really know much about wine can you help us and i was like well, what what what's the brief and and they were like well the kind of the owner really wants to know what's possible in Australia. You know, why Why is it? Why does the world think French wine is superior to Australian wine when mm. in his mind he like he tends to prefer the best wines of Australia to him often taste better than half the shit that he spends a fortune on from Bordeaux or wherever else. So he his brief is, I want you to find out why Australian wine isn't perceived as the equal of wine from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought... That's kind of interesting. <laughs> that doesn't really, that kind of thing doesn't happen very often. And so spent quite a long, about six months really talking through the implications of that kind of brief and, and realised that if we were going to do it, we had to be pretty courageous. Otherwise, it was a pointless enterprise. We had to really change. If we were asked to try and change the way people think about Australian wine, then we had to we had to take some serious risk and, and do some things which probably were going to be quite controversial Mm. um but to me that uh, i couldn't think of anything i'd rather do that's i mean that was in the end really what i was trying to do even at de bortoli and it it was really just a continuation of the line of inquiry that i'd had all along you know place how do you make place the priority when typically in australia variety and personality tend to bubble above a real connection to place and and to me the only way australia can be considered the equal of all other places in wine is if we find a deep and meaningful connection to place and we make wines that truly are wines of place rather than single bits of dirt that have an ego kind of poured all over them. When did the first Thousand Candles wine get released? Uh, in 2012. Yeah, which was, that was when I was away. But I, even, even whilst I was travelling, I think I saw stuff on Twitter and online sort of talking about this crazy sort of new project in the Yarra Valley and it was, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a field blend kind of wine, really expression site. Yeah. Variety sort of didn't even come into the equation. It was really just about this this particular site. Which, yeah, it was. it's exactly what I've been doing for 10 years prior to that. And, and, that, and even two, three years ago now, that seemed very strange. Um but 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 then I think when I actually first met you was in 2013 at the Negotiants Trade Day down at Ormond Hall and oh yeah I think you were showing 
I think you were showing two vintages and and I and I was just sort of flabbergasted by these wines that they were so they were saying so much but still for me seemed not complicated and I kind of liked that approach so it was it's funny how you can sort of read stuff and get an idea about what you know this this is sort of like trying to be a, a real statement kind of wine and and I kind of liked the, uh, the 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 fact that it wasn't to do with you know it being oh we you know we macerate the hell out of it and you know with throwing a whole bunch of new oak it was really no, just trying about, about any of that. limiting you know to intervention almost completely yeah and just I said when we kind of bought the property like I chose the property the the business bought the property and we went there and I said okay we're going to farm and we're going to listen and whatever the wine is is whatever it is we will not impose a wine on the place we will try and find a connection to the place and and try and bring it to life and and we'll harvest what we get mm. um and, and to me that was really that is really fundamental to making wine of place and that is the only reason that we're doing the project so mm. I it, we we made some conscious decisions about a couple of things that we knew were going to be controversial, but we felt had to be addressed. You know, you can't. It, one of the one of the real problems in with Australian the Australian perception of wine is that that only a French wine is worth a lot of money, and Australian wines never worth more than a hundred dollars. Yeah, unless unless you know, there's this kind of simplistic notion of of um, history or integrity or you know which doesn't really take Old into account vine. none of which really values place none of which none of which really says australia has a contribution to make to the world of wine which is the equal of all other mm. um so we we intentionally we said from the outset well apart from the, the simple fact that the wine had to be expensive or we we just couldn't afford to do it you know to work to the standard that we want to work to you have to be small and then it's very costly, so the wine had to be expensive. And so we said, no, no, it, it, Australia doesn't have a future unless we make more wines which are priced like wine from elsewhere. Absolutely. Um, you, you need only look around the wine regions and see all the wineries that lose money and all the people who've invested huge amounts of money and who can't make a profit. Um, we felt that that if we kind of if we went out there and we took the hit then that was actually going to create a whole bunch of opportunity for other people to sell wine for more money. Sure. And if, if we kind of had to sacrifice ourselves to the, to, the mat, to the hordes in order to create that opportunity, and I'm not saying we actually did that in the end, but what I am saying is we, we were happy to take that risk in order to create opportunities for more wine to aspire to that level. Mm. And that's part of changing what Australian wine or the perception of Australian wine. If there's more people out there saying, yeah, my wine's worth 200 bucks or 250 bucks or 150, then having that confidence to say this place is of that much value is part of, is a big part of changing the, the way the rest of the world views Australian wine, particularly if it come, comes from more diverse places than what it currently does. I find that so interesting that, you know, the governing bodies, it's not called Wine Australia anymore, is it? It's something else. Um, keep talking about that, you know, oh, we need to be sort of selling wine that, you know, is more value-oriented uh, rather than volume-oriented. And yet they're, they're not doing anything about it. Well, and moreover, some people within within that organisation were, were quite vocally, publicly scathing of our enterprise and our yeah, options for pricing. It's, so it's, 
ironic. It's, I think that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, look, I don't really care. I mean, we knew that we were going to cop some shit and we were quite happy to do that. You know, I think there, that doesn't happen quite often enough in wine in Australia. I think we tend to be excessively conservative in many aspects of what we do and and we were quite happy to be controversial in order to help create some additional space and, you know, we're far from the only ones doing it, but but we thought there were there were some issues that hadn't really been tackled and, you know, some of them are really only an aside, you know, pricing isn't that important, but it was still something that needed to be tackled. Um, to me, you know, what we don't see enough of is genuine connection to place. Mm. And, and, and even, even amongst the new wave of really wonderful wines that are being made that I enjoy very, very much, they're still, still not necessarily wines of place in the sense that I think they ought to be. Mm. Um, it's coming. It's not very far away, but we're not there yet. We still spend too much time focusing on variety and not enough time focusing on farming mm-hmm. and cultural connection to place. So, what's um, what what have you been up to more recently? What what's kind of the, the next thing that's happening with uh, with Bill Downey? Hopefully, not too much. I I really don't. I you know I feel like I've I've done. As many kind of big things as I really want to do. I, I, I want to, from here, have a, a slightly simpler life. And, you know, we're nearly, I think we'll might, we, we're in danger of actually making some wine from our own vineyard this year. Um, and when you say your own, you're talking about on the at, farm? At the farm in West Gippsland. Okay. Um, so that vineyard's, vineyard's now coming into a seven, its seventh season, dry grown. Our, our low density plantings are at ten thousand vines per hectare, all the way up to twenty thousand vines per hectare, and you know we've worked as much as possible with our horse, who unfortunately passed away in June. So we're horseless at the minute, but that whole task of developing that and working on that's that's been the most rewarding. Well, the farm more broadly, but mm. that that's really where our attention is mostly focused at the moment is is trying to make some wine from there that we're comfortable with. That's exciting. Um, yeah, it's been a long time coming. You know, I looked at that bit of dirt for 10 years before we actually bought it, and we bought it nine, what, eight years ago. Mm. So by the time we actually sell some wine from there, it's probably going to be pushing towards 20 years of of wanting to do it from, from that specific piece of dirt. But in, in the meantime, um, what what sort of wines have you got out in the market that people can um, can purchase and, and have a try as they listen to this episode? Uh, well, there's I guess the William Downey, the three William Downey wines, Mornington, Yarra, Gippsland, mm-hmm. 13s are still around a bit, I think, and then 14 release of that is first of May. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on the 2013 Thousand Candles, which is probably that's the first wine I feel like. I've bottled and and thought really started to get to the the crux of things. You know, it tastes like it came from somewhere. It's properly savoury. That to me is a, a wine of interest, mm. more so than probably anything I've done before. And then we have our kind of joint venture with a friend of mine, Jason, that makes bistro kind of wine under the Save Our Souls label, Sagrantino mm-hmm. Sangiovese. Sagrantino. Um, yeah, from Chalmers. And ah, awesome. It tastes nothing at all like Sagrantino would if it came from Umbria, but it's kind of like super floral Beaujolais and quite Ooh. pale in colour and quite good fun and bottled with only about 20 parts total. Sagrantino Nouveau. Yeah, it kind of is. And although most of those wines are low, 
like maximum 30 parts total sulfur. Yeah. Um, and they're a bit of fun. They're just, they're not very serious, but quite good fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, obviously we're approaching um, a busy time of the year. Not only have you obviously got vintage, and I'm sure you're going to be doing a fair bit of driving around, but um, I think you're involved with one of the events which is happening at the Melbourne Food Wine Festival. Yeah. Yeah, the Highway 1 street party at the convent, which Pat Sullivan and Campbell Burton are putting together. That um, looks fantastic. You know, some yeah, great- Dave Pink coming from Singapore is pretty exciting. That That's probably... Big deal. That's a hell of a big deal. He's he's a bit of a genius. He's, mm. he, I, I've eaten. I, I went to Burntines about three months after it opened, and in Singapore, and we. I sat down. I was with one other person, and we kind of ordered a few starters and a few mains, and it was like, oh, whoa, this is amazing. And and then I ended up calling him over and said, look, just we want to start again. Can you just bring us all the rest of the entrees and all the rest of the mains, please? Mm-hmm. So we, we ate the whole menu in kind of two sittings at the one time. And so you were like Monsieur Curiosote in uh, Monty Python's pretty much, life. yeah, yeah. But it's it was so exciting thing. and so so it was great fun. So I'm pretty excited about him coming, and I like the way Pat and Campbell have thought about the wine producers that are going to be there. You know, they're they're kind of avoiding pigeonholes and just saying, look, you know, we want to pour some wine that we think tastes really good and yeah. it's made by people who really care about what they do. So. It is, it, for me, it's a very exciting time, yeah. um, particularly in terms of Victorian wine. There's some really exceptional stuff and, and in some cases coming from places you wouldn't immediately think of. And, yeah. and I think, you know, West Gippsland is somewhere that people might, wouldn't necessarily think of as far as wine. No, and there's not much there, but Pat and his wife, Megan, have just bought a farm down the road from us and planting a little vineyard on a pretty exciting bit of hillside there mm. um but yeah McCall the guy john i think his name's john i can't remember now i'm trying to blank but from McAllister, who who's a legend and who's made some of the most extraordinary bordeaux kind of classic bordeaux style wines that probably have ever been made in this country but nobody really bothers to think about anymore they were well regarded in the 80s but since then or in the early 90s but nobody talks about them anymore but they're quite amazing Mm-mm. um well, I'm, I'm excited to sort of see what uh, is potentially coming out of your vineyard and Patrick's vineyard. And I certainly urge everyone to uh, to, to jump online and secure some tickets to the Highway 1. I think it's probably going to sell out pretty quickly. Yeah, I think so. The food's – and Dave Moyle's coming up um, and Josh from Builders slash um, Moon Underwater, mm-hmm. those guys are on the pans. Um, if you if you want to come to a food and wine event where not only all the patrons but um, a fair amount of uh, the exhibitors are very much bearded variety, uh, I, I highly recommend coming along. Cause it's gonna, and there's going to be some great food and wine as well, of course. But uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Bill. Uh, my, my pleasure. Can you want people following you on social media? I know, I'm not sure if you're. I don't care. They're interested, yeah, but. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be offended if they weren't at all interested. <laughs> Guys, just just seek him out, send him an email, get his phone number, call him, and, and just say hello and you know tell him you enjoyed the podcast. But uh, thank you very much, and I look forward to catching up again soon. Pleasure.
Thanks again, guys, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, definitely check out the Highway 1 Street Party. You can find that on Google. That's on the 7th of March at the Abbotsford Convent. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Wino. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at The Vincast. Find me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Wino, And at intrepidwino.com, you can find all of the episodes of the podcast, as well as different writings uh, that I've done in the past few years. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM and get them as soon as they go up and whilst you're there please do leave me a rating and review it does help me out a lot got lots of great guests coming up so stay tuned and until next time bye